34. It's all the fault of that little F-R-E-A-K. I find their illogic and foolish emotions a constant irritant. And transfer out, freak! I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass, and I'm all out of bubblegum. Cheap, lying, no good, rotten, four-flushing, low-life, snake-licking, dirt-eating, inbred, overstuffed, ignorant, blood-sucking, dog-kissing, brainless, dickless, hopeless, heartless, fat-ass, bug-eyed, stiff-legged, spotty-legged, and now, together by live simulation via the internet, Scott Gardner and Chris Honeywell. Blah, 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 Star Wars, The Clone Wars. Hello, we're back with another uh, episode of Two True Freaks, and it's uh, the top of the month, so we're at a Star Wars episode, Star Wars Monthly Monday, where uh, we'll be talking about um, the fifth episode of the, the Clone Wars show that's on Cartoon Network, and... Issues 13 through 15 of uh, the Marvel Star Wars, and there might even be a, a a new twist to an old section of our uh, book club reading. And I I shouldn't say there might be because there will be, <laughs> and uh, that we like to call Orca's Book Club. And uh, with me is a man who actually smells very similar to uh, Chewbacca, Mr. Scott Gardner. Whoa. <laughs> you smell like my... him more than you sound like him. Oh wow! Well, okay, well that was but... my shit Wookiee impression right it's there. It's okay. I was doing my shit. Applause! Yoda. Applause! I, I was doing my shit Yoda impression before the show. So <laughs> do it again. Do it again. <laughs> shit impression of Yoda is this? <laughs> well, you were supposed to read the the quote, but you don't have it in front of you, do you? Nothing the, like the... Yoda. This sounds. The, the quote for this episode of, of Clone Wars is, The best confidence builder is experience, which <laughs> sounds like... The best confidence like, builder is experience. <laughs> <laughs> ah, yes. How's that? <laughs> it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> this sounds like something that would be on one of those inspirational posters you'd see outside of like the the human resources department of you know wherever you work at but uh a bald uh, man still. has his hand up my butt <laughs> <laughs> a bald man's hand up your butt you have see how much like yoda you sound does you that know, even I, make I, any I sense never... No, not really. I never <laughs> thought I'd hear a worse impression of Yoda than John Lithgow's, but but that's John you know Lith- you're doing pretty good. Oh, that's right. John Lithgow actually did it for the radio. Was it for the radio show? 
Yeah, for the radio show. Yeah, it was He's pretty horrible. He's one of my favorite actors too, but yeah. Uh, not a good Yoda. Yeah. Not a good Yoda at all. Well, all right, let's do a little uh, comparison between me and John Lithgow. This is me. That is why you fail. All right, and John Lithgow. That is why you fail. Well, so far I think I'm kicking his ass. All right, here's another one from me. Oh, can't get your ship out. And the corresponding John Lithgow line. Oh, cannot get your ship out. <laughs> anyway, right. what were we talking about? Oh, yeah. Star Clone Wars, episode Clone five. Clone Wars, episode five. Now, I really like this episode. This is this is a different one from... So far, they've been doing all different kinds of... Taking all different kinds of approaches while still having the same rapid-fire battle approach of the original series. And this one takes a whole new tack where it's basically just sort of a story concerning clone troopers. You know, um, Obi-Wan and, and Anakin are in it, but they're just in sort of the Raymond Burr in the American cut of Godzilla style where... They're just at home base, you know, and people are reporting back to them, and they're going, "Oh no, we better do this or that," you know. They're 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 just as a sort of, you know, meanwhile back at the base type of role, whereas the main story and characters are all a bunch of uh, rookie clone troopers that have been uh, sort of hurried into service, you know, since the the war is amping up. A lot of the clones are being, you know, shoved out into the battlefield a little quicker than. Maybe their their um their forerunners were, so this is a whole uh, sort of um base on a small remote planet, and uh, you know so they're 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 all very bored. Has your first um, glimpse at like interdimensional or you know intergalactic radio, which seems to have a sort of generic sort of dancing. Maybe they can choose from a bunch of things, but they have this sort of dancing holo lady that plays along with the really cheesy sort of 80s style music that's coming out of it, but not the worst um, example of, of you know, sort of rock music intruding into a universe, which I usually hate that shit. Right. When, when all of a sudden there's, you know, I mean, nothing really compares to the horror of you know the the um the added scenes to the special editions with the you know especially on Jabba's barge with oh you're talking about Jedi rocks I like Jedi rocks oh the pain I felt the pain and like I mean I like I, to, I gotta tell I, like I to I, say I, shit like that just so, because I can imagine. Somewhere there's a head actually exploding inside a pair of yeah. earbuds right now, just going. Yeah, the synapses are just going fry, 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 fry right across the line. Because I remember, you know me, you know me. I do not embarrass easily. Yeah, I just don't get embarrassed easily. It, it, I mean, you know who I've hung around with, <laughs> and uh, you know just how my life is. I do not get embarrassed easily, not in public. Not anywhere, but sitting in the movie theater watching Jedi Rocks was just like, I, I sat there and just felt embarrassed for George Lucas and thought, you know, buddy, this is, that, I, I think in 
the official like Star Wars movie moments, I think that is just the lowest point ever. Was that it was just so obvious. It was almost like he was trying to be bad. It was almost as if he was just mocking you, daring you to to call him on, uh-huh. on that. Oh. Jedi Rocks, that sequence was and better, better than the original piece that was in there, though, which was Lopty Neck, which was just god-awful. Now, there we go. Now, Lopty Neck was a masterpiece. <sighs> neither neither what both of them. But, you see, that's the thing. Instead of just replacing Lopty Neck with another song, which was technically a better song... But it was just sort of, you know, I'm just not going to expect the music of Jabba's planet to evolve along American R&B lines. You know, I'm expecting more of like, all right, you know, it came from the indigenous music of the sand people and Jawas, which I would imagine to be more like Eastern European gypsy music or something, or, you know... Arabic or like old school like Hasidic Jew music where it's uh, you know folk music you know ethnic folk music and maybe if it evolved around rock music lines it would sound like Kashmir by Led Zeppelin or something but good god you know come on and oh no 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 rock music although you know this is sort of passable in Clone Wars just because I think Clone Wars is already established itself as being kind of a little more malleable presentation of Star Wars, right? Has worked as such, so I didn't hate it. I was bracing myself to hate it, and uh, you know, just like when you hear the the um, surfing with the alien type music, you know, all of a sudden there was rock music. You know, there was a guitar going. As, as spaceships were flying, and I, and I remember thinking, this is kind of weird for Star Wars. But in this one, you know, okay, I can see they're on a lonely outpost and they're they're listening to the radio. You, you know, something's got to come out of that radio. You know, although I, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I don't know. I picture more classical music or something like that, being a more universal form of music that you would hear. You know, in another galaxy in another time or something. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, they're they're a bunch of soldiers. You know, they're they're yeah. they're, they're going to y- listen to young hip music. Although, right. then again, they're a bunch of clone soldiers. So, like, I I try I I wonder how much like culture they're really you know or childhood you know they've really had or they've probably been trained as soldiers their entire existence it's it's weird you'd think the only thing they would know was the you know the rigors of a sort of militaristic life but either way we're watching you know it's clone wars so basically you know it's 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 almost a throwback it's it's not even almost it's a throwback to world war 2 movies which a lot of the battle sequences in star wars originally were so you know, this is this is kind of cool because it's a, instead of a throwback to the dogfights and stuff, it's a throwback to that. You know, all the all the buddies and their nicknames and you know, living in their barracks, and it, it really could almost be set at any time or place. 
the way it is. And and Clone Wars, the series, is sort of doing that in general, playing with those different genres of, of um, I guess, battle-type shows or whatever, and and the conventions of them. Because, you know, further on they, they, they explore the, you know, friend and enemy handcuffed together. So you get all these different... And there's some that are like light comedy. And this one is sort of the buddies having having to rise to the occasion and in the beginning they're complaining about being bored you know and having a boring job and wishing they could be near the the action and of course you know that that in a half hour show that action can't be far behind especially if they're wishing they could be near it it's going to something's going to happen soon and it definitely happens cuz they get they get invaded by droids who try to keep try to invade they they take over the base and try to keep the all clear signal going so that they can get a, a invasion fleet past this checkpoint. So it's a story of these these untrained or less trained inexperienced clone troopers trying to uh take their base over, you know, before, until help gets there and um which eventually arrives in the form of um now what what what's the um clone trooper's name? Was it Cody Rex? in this one? I can't remember was it, if it, it was, was Rex, Cody or or Rex. Cody. Yeah, it was one of the two of them. Who are turning out to be sort of the two, you know, top clone troopers that are that are in best with the with the Jedi. And uh, you know, one one of them shows up at towards the end and and you know, helps them take the the base back over. But in the meantime, one of them has to sacrifice his life. There's a great scene where the giant worm just gobbles one of them up. Yeah, <laughs> which and I'm watching it and they're and they're and they're sort of making like jokes about it and I'm thinking, wait, their friend just you know their friend just died, and they're and they're kind of joking about it. But then as soon as I thought that one of them goes, poor guy, you know, as they're walking away, and it's like, okay, whoever was writing the script realized, all right, maybe they should acknowledge that their friend just got eaten, <laughs> and that's all he got was one line. Oh, poor. Poor whatever his name was, you know, didn't deserve <laughs> to get eaten by a worm. But um, yeah, and there's a and there's a later scene where I think it's Rex, um, where the worm pops out on Rex and he just immediately just shoots it right in the eye without even thinking, just drops it right dead. And they're like, well, <laughs> you, you sort of see the difference between an inexperienced clone trooper and a war hardened badass clone trooper but all all in all I thought it was a really good episode it wasn't the most visually crazy and exciting episode you know there weren't any sweeping beautiful um, battle scenes or anything or you know huge incredibly neat battle scenes but it was it was a good story I thought it, it kind of struck me as, uh, you know, I, I, I think the, the two episodes that really stood out for most people of the prior Clone Wars series, the animated series, was the, the episode with Mace Windu, you know, where he battled pretty much everything by himself. I think right. that's arguably the most popular episode. But then the other one that always really stood out that, that I hear people talk about 
was the one with the clone troopers, you know, where they basically just went in and, and it was all tactics and maneuvers with just the clone troopers. Yeah, without really and, any dialogue. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, they realized that, that to a certain degree they, they need to have episodes like that, that, that kind of carry that same sort of formula. And so I think this was sort of a an homage slash continuation of of the second one of of the 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 clone trooper formula because those episodes always seem to be very popular the ones where it's pretty much just the clone troopers you know being you know doing the total militaristic you know the the maneuvers and the tactics and all that and plus like you say it's also kind of a buddy picture too so I, yeah I, I like this one a lot but I like this one because. This this is the kind of thing I complain about with with like the Star Wars books that I've been trying to read is that I, I think that with the books there's there's a tendency to overcomplicate it to tell some big complicated military or big complicated political story and you know that may be all well and good for some people but I I think you just you take something which is a bit, pretty basic premise and and you try to overcomplicate it and and it just it, it well, they only it, have it, a half hour, so they got to, you know, right. get to it. In the in the in the in the series before this, I mean, weren't I think weren't the original episodes? They were like five minutes long. Yeah, yeah, they were like five or six minutes. So yeah, you, so, yeah, you had to get right to it. <laughs> yeah, that's what I like about this, especially episodes like this. You know, there's there's a war on, but I like the ones where there's not a, a whole lot of complicated. You know, this one here is very basic. It's an outpost; they have to defend it. Yep. You know, I, those are the episodes I like best. Where it's it gets taken you know, over, they got to take it back over. Right. You know, the the ones where, like I said before, you know, you know, here's your objective, you got to go blow it up, or here's your objective, yeah. you have to defend it. Th- those are the best kind of episodes to me because it's a very basic. You don't need a whole lot of crap. You know, you don't need to know about some stupid planet and all their internal politics and this politician's trying to do this and there's a secret thing blah screw all that i just want to i just want a good old fashioned we need to blow up you know this or we need to defend you know and that's what this yeah. episode is and that's why well, i really liked it i think like around and after world war 2 there was a real popularity and even during the vietnam era on movies and tvs for uh, you know world war 2 more movies and tv but, you know, after that, there was a, a period where, like, um, you know, you'd have your science fiction, your cowboy movies, and and TV shows, and your war shows. You know, whether they were lighthearted or whether they were just tactical battle shows, there were a lot of TV shows about World War Two and a lot of movies about World War Two, And there were a lot of shows about other wars during Vietnam, but there were war shows, you know, but there weren't really ones on Vietnam. And I think... These days, you know, where we're uh, we are a nation at war, usually that there's, you know, some sort of desire to see those kinds of shows, and if, and maybe even when we're not at war, there seems to be a desire to be see that kind of show. But those shows, especially nowadays, for the amount of realism that you'd have to have to for people to be able to accept it, would be really expensive to have like a World War II show. Whereas the old ones, you could get away with the cheesy effects and, you know, the dog faces, you know, that sort of thing, you know, Marines and, 
uh, you know, a little studio set of trenches to to fight from, but you can't get away with that nowadays. But you can get away with this because it's a computer animated show, so you don't have to build giant sets and stuff. And I think it might be filling this show might be filling a need that's a vacuum that's out there for military type dramas, you know, where where it's action. And, uh, you know, people are very interested in the, the mechanics of war, of, you know, you have this in huge fleet of spaceships, how would it get used and deployed in the case of an interplanetary war, you know, and you and you get to see it, and, the, you know, now that technology has gotten to this, you can see even this sort of kiddie show, which is not really a kiddie show, because a lot of people, and, you know, at first you could sort of, get away with killing a lot of because you're killing just droids and clones (laughs) but in this show especially which is probably the most accessible to kids because it's on tv and it's on the cartoon network you know they're they're really making the clones into people with separate personality each clone has a set is you know they're they're really drawing an underline in this show that each clone has its own personality and is its own separate person so now when you see clones dying, there's a little more of a wince to it, you know. It's more of a sympathetic character, even if it's just Joe Redshirt clone running, you know, and all of a sudden you see him get blown away. You know, you can see a million robots get blown away, but now you realize that those clones are real people. And I think, I don't know if they're doing that on purpose. I sort of think that they probably are, and I think it's uh, it's kind of a neat it's kind of neat, you know. It's uh, it, it it gives you a little. It's it's it addresses an issue that sort of come up with, with these about like you know the number of people die. You know how how can you have this big intergalactic war when you know and it happens a lot. I think it happened with Roddenberry too when your your franchise gets really popular and you start thinking, well, you know, I want to be a positive person and. And this, so I don't. I don't want peop- my franchise to glorify violence, and I don't want people. You know, I want to show the sanctity in life in it. So, you know, I mean, towards towards the end, Roddenberry would like call anybody on anything. He goes, I don't want anybody killing anybody on Star Trek. You know, and uh, and uh, you know, the original Star Trek was full of people getting killed and beat up and wiped out. You know, um, but. Uh, I think the same sort of happened with George Lucas. Is that's why he created robot armies and clone. Well, the clone army is sort of newer is coming from the Clone Wars, but he made huge armies of robots because you could kill off millions of them without having the whole battlefield drenched in blood. You know, like it right. really should be in in real life, and and that you couldn't get away with in a Star Wars movie. Nobody wants to see that in a Star Wars movie. You know, well, I'm sure there's somebody who does, but you know, nobody wants to turn Star Wars into the Dark Knight. God forbid. Well, I, I think it's very ironic what you were saying about the 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 clone troopers. You know, being you know kind of sympathetic, you know, and becoming individuals and all that, because I find as I watch more of this show and some of the books I've been reading recently, you know, the Clone Wars era set books and stuff like that, I've come to really have a a fondness fondness and attachment to the clone troopers, and I find that more and more I'm having somewhat of a disdain for the Jedi. 
yeah. because they do come off a lot of it's times arrogant. as a bunch of arrogant pricks. I think that's you know? a whole – I think – you see, I think people really, really, really profoundly misjudge George Lucas's – you know, the amount of thought that George Lucas put into this. I don't think – I think even a lot of the real Star Wars fans really misjudge how much thought and how much – you know, effort he's made to sort of make points. And I think a lot of people have missed it because they haven't been the points maybe that they wanted him to make or that they would have made or that they would have liked to have seen or they expected to see or whatever. But I think a lot, you know, I think a lot of the, 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 the last trilogy of movies, you know, episodes one through three were about how, how the Jedi were kind of becoming pricks they were starting to become arrogant and starting to believe this inflated opinion of themselves. For the most part, um, Mace Windu being like a, a really, you know, Mace Windu being a good example of it is as probably the most obvious and main character Jedi that was kind of the most. I mean, he was like. So, uh, uh, um, there was one point in, I think it was uh, episode, it was in episode one, where, you know, they're in the Jedi Council, and they're like, so you're going to take him on for training or whatever, and he's like, no, we will not, you know, this is really snotty, condescending, right. shitty way, and, you know, Samuel Jackson's a really good actor, so he did that for a reason, you know, there was something, there was, you know, he was conveying something in there, and, 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 um, uh, my friend Mark, his after seeing episode one, he's like, you know, I think, I think um, this whole thing is going to be about the fall of the Jedi, and the Jedi are falling because they're getting to a point where they're more concerned with the physical aspect of being the Jedi. You know, their technology and their their power and status in politics, and you know their their powers and what they can do. And not as much as the spiritual aspect of being a Jedi, you know, and they're getting too entangled in war and violence and, you know, this and that's and and if they continue doing that, they're all going to end up being Sith. So the force knows that it's got to take the Jedi out at this point. So really, it's really necessary for the Sith to rise up and take out all the Jedi and have it start new, and and he's like, this movie's, these three movies he was saying are going to be about technology, you know, the technological aspect of the Jedi, and how right. that ultimately failed them, and was their downfall, and now it's being reborn in a more organic nature, you know, the natural, you know, force within, and the philosophical aspects of the force... And that uh, which are embodied in the in the first movie, the well, the first the first in the timeline movies, by Yoda and um, Yoda, Qui Gon, and Obi Wan, are the three Jedi who really, you know, they they really have that sort of kind. They have a, that religious monk sort of thing about them, you know. Yoda right. really seems truly wise, and. Uh, really beyond like power tripping or and Obi-Wan seems, you know, just 
down to earth, you know, Yoda, Obi-Wan, and to an extent Anakin is sort of torn between the two. And uh, in the end, Anakin maybe is, it's necessary for him to be evil, to take out the Jedi and uh, and at the same time be the one who, pa- he still is passing on the midic, midic- that's why he has. I'm figuring it all out right now. That's why he has this super <laughs> midichlorian count because he's passing on. He passes on Luke and Leah. So Le- Leia. So his double mi- super midichlorian count pops out to normal. You know, it halved with halved with. You know, we can assume Amidala is just normal human midichlorian. You know, makes two just generally powerful Jedi to pass on and to have there for Obi-Wan and Yoda to mold into a real, you know, a real, a true Jedi that's more in league with the natural force than, you know, than the, than technology and, and I don't know if science is really the word for it. You are just on a roll tonight. I guess so. all of all of all of that out of out of this <laughs> simple episode yeah. about the clone troopers. Well, you no, see, I, they, I, make I was this, reading... they make this energy drink, <laughs> and uh... well, I was reading uh, something the other day. I think it was a. I think it was one of those Clone Wars adventures uh-huh. digest or something. But there was a story in there where where Obi Wan was battling like this assassin or something. And she was making a point about the inherent um, hypocrisy in the fact of, you know, here were these Jedi and they were supposed to be on the moral high ground and all that. Yeah, here they were fighting this huge war, you know, and, and breeding all these clones to just basically to just, be disposable people, yeah. you know, disposable soldiers. And and I thought, wow, that well, what an excellent point, you know, what a what a very profound observation, you know, and uh, yeah, so I don't know. Over time, it, it is. It's slowly coming about for me to where I actually see. I like the little moments where you can see, you know, behind the mask, yes. pun intended, of of the clone troopers, and see, you know, that that they actually have some. You know, not only feelings and emotions and and personality and all that, but I I think there's actually a little bit of resentment there for their lot in life. Well, let me you know, tell the, you, Scott, the fact you're, that you're they behind, are bred. You're behind huh? on your episodes, but I, I will just say that come that comes up. Oh, uh, okay. That 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 exact what you just said. It starts getting addressed, and I think that's really cool. That's. That's a really that's a really neat idea, and that's something that I've sort of wondered about: is you know how interesting can these characters be if they're if they're cloned for their and you know I think that I can't remember wh- where it was said, but didn't they say like they'd they'd um they'd you know genetically altered some of the independence out of their their right their that was in episode original, two yeah yeah that that template. woman. Yeah, that woman on uh, Camino that Obi Wan meets up with, she right. thinks he's there about the clones, and right. she says that that yeah, they basically they you know because that's why uh, 
Django wanted an unaltered clone because he didn't want one that was going to be, right. you know, he wanted a, he tam- wanted one that was basically him, right, a replica of right. him. And this was like they t- they took him and for the clone troopers, it was just basically they took him and probably got rid of the traits that they didn't like and tweaked up the traits that they did like. But they used him as just a framework. He was the physical and template, basic yeah. yeah template to build their clones off of. And it sounds like they picked him just because of proximity, too. He mm-hmm. was the best, you know, he was there working for him. And they said, oh, this guy's tough. Let's use him. He's like the, he, he was sort of the equivalent of the, like, working, like you have the rich um, estate manor in old England when you have the working class handyman, you know, who's swarthy, swearing, but they get him to do all the dirty work and all the the rough and tumble stuff. Right. That's sort of what Django Fett was, and they're like, get his genetics. <laughs> well, something He's else I really liked in this episode was uh, I liked the look of the station that they were at because it was very, very Death Star-like, and it looked a lot yep. like the uh, the detention cell area yep. from the original Death Star. Um, there was a point where Well, they have the that droids, round control uh-huh. area. You know well, there I'm was saying? a shot where the droid uh, army guys come in toward the end of the episode, and just the the angle that they have walking into the room really gave me a very strong vibe of the part where uh, Han and Luke disguised as stormtroopers bring Chewie in, and the guy you know stops him and says, "You know, where are you taking this thing?" and all that. It, it was. It looked very similar to that. So I, I have to wonder if that was a, a you know an intentional homage to that sequence because it sure did look very similar. You know the design of the room and the control panels and all that. I really liked that. I thought that was very cool. I like it when the when the universe looks consistent between the different Star Wars eras and stuff like that. Yeah, and they well they the, they're really having a lot of fun with that whole. The, the design of this show because it's that transition between, you know, when they were the good guys and the bad guys. So you have the good guys, the people you're identifying with, are all running around in the in in this in these environments that you totally visually, you know, um, sort of associate with evil, you know. And it's funny because when I when I first saw Star Wars, I sort of the whole imperial look was very derivative, I thought, of, like, Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. You know, it had that utilitarian German look of, like, clean, efficient, basic. You know, it had a it had a, a sort of artistic design to it, but it was a cold, efficient, evilness. And the uniforms were straight up, like, almost SS uniforms and the way the people talked and everything. And the whole thing just had this whole... And so you you sort of think it, but you sort of think of that as being okay. That's how evil people dress. But no, it was actually how the good guys dress, and they just became evil. So that 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 whole sort of. But the weird thing is, in Clone Wars, it doesn't look. It doesn't have that Nazi feel to it. You know, it just has. It's weird. They're doing a really good job of making it work. You know. With that clash of, they're they're using that clash of 
of how if something's supposed to be, feel good or evil being reversed to really play up the feel of that time period where it was more ambiguous as to who were the good guys and who were the bad guys. Although, actually, you know, I mean, it's that you know who the good guys and the bad guys are, but they're at this point where they're about to switch, and it's weird. Right. Yeah. That, well, that's what I'm. I'm really digging about it. it is, you know, it, it, again, it comes back to that. You know, it, it kind of toys with your emotions a little bit. You know, because it, it you know, these guys that originally. You know, gave you the stormtrooper vibe, so you you were maybe slow to warm to them or whatever. Now you've come become attached to them, but you know where they're eventually headed. You yeah. know, you know what's going to happen. You know, now we've seen episode three, and we've seen you know the Order sixty six and all that, and yeah, it does. It really you know the more you you watch this series and get attached to the to the clone troopers and think they're really cool, and you get used to certain. Uh-huh identities and all that i i think it makes going back and viewing that part of episode three that much more poignant and maybe even painful yeah to watch you know because not only are you watching the jedi be assassinated but you're watching these guys that they ultimately yeah they befriended them but ultimately i feel sad for the troopers because i don't think they have any choice you know they're they're an army they're They're just an army and it's what basically what has happened is the higher ups, you know, in a political sense, what happened is the higher ups, the Jedi have fallen out of favor, and there's been and then there's been a public relations campaign against the Jedi with a couple staged incidents, you know, with the Emperor of the Jedi trying to assassinate the Emperor, which you know make everybody go, what's up with the you know the Jedi are presented as the enemy, the the Jedi you know. To the general public of Coruscant and the galaxy, it looks like the Jedi have tried to take over, you know, have tried to take over the government and were thwarted. So to to know, so the change from good to evil of that is not is only apparent to the Jedi because <laughs> they're the ones who are like, oh shit, you know, they're hunted right. down and killed and driven away because they're the only ones that can probably stand in Palpatine's way but yeah it's 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 all you know as far as the galaxy and most of the you know population are concerned nothing has really changed except the Jedi have gone bad so to the to the you know to the rest of the ga- so you know you you start getting that I you start get also getting the idea which is more like reality that you know and and is also probably the reality of like Nazi Germany that a lot of those people were, you know, they were in the, you know, they were for their government and they thought they were, you know, they thought they were doing the right thing, you know, to some, to some, to some degree, you know, where you have the people who are, you know, in it from a subjective point of view and, you know, as far as they're concerned, their country or their their leadership, and you know, I don't know what you'd call it in in the Star Wars, you know, you know, the but your ruling body is to them the same. You know, they they have the same actual leader. You know, Palpatine was their leader, but but, but now he's scarred and horrible. But you know, so he's outwardly evil looking. But there's an explanation for that, and that's and that's part of what's allowed him to demonize 
the Jedi. So it's 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 weird, and and you're in that you you know you're looking at you know the one guy who the Jedi are working with right now, who's he's in his I can't remember the guy. He looks like John Cleese, so you know you know who I'm talking about. And, oh yeah, that's uh, Yalaren. Yeah, yeah, and he'll be you know, and and in ten years he'll be you know hunting down you know Princess Leia, <laughs> and think he's doing you know he thinks he's doing the right thing you know because right. The, the, so you get that you get that um, you know he George Lucas is is actually you know taking something that people are always criticizing for being very shallow. But he's, you know, addressing some really complicated issues that usually people only do in, like, quote-unquote serious films. Well, I mean, I've never been one of those, oh, George Lucas has lost it and all that people. I, I think that I think the, the, the criticisms that he could be reined in a little bit. You know, I think those are valid criticisms, oh, sure. but the ones about, oh, he lost it and this prequel trilogy just sucks and blah, blah, blah. I think they, the problem is that so many of us are, are such huge fans of the original trilogy and we came with such baggage and such expectations oh, sure. of what we wanted. And he, you know, he's a smart guy. He's got his own ideas and he, he knew the story he wanted to tell and, yep. and stuff like that. And, and, and somehow it just didn't really live up to or, or fit into other people's, you know, expectations or what. You know, I, I, if I have one criticism that I, I think is very valid, you know, uh, that, that matches most other criticisms I heard, I've heard of the, uh, prequel trilogy is just simply that, and I've noticed this across the board in Hollywood, especially since computer effects have become mm -hmm. the norm now, is that I think the new movies today. Well, well, yeah, that, but I, I, I think movies today are really prove the old uh, adage of less is more. Oh, sure. Because you know, back in the day when you had a limited budget. And you you didn't have computer effects to where you could actually put what was in your mind's eye on the screen, and you had to play around with things like latex masks and physical effects and physical model building and and come know, up with things that are sort of really cheesy, like pushing your camera on a shopping cart past a model right. in order in order to get a scene, but it works, you know. Right, and I think that's why you you look at movies like you know, the original Star Wars or Superman the movie or something like that, and they hold up better and are more entertaining and, and are timeless compared to their more contemporary sequels like Phantom Menace or Superman Returns because suddenly the, the, the you know, there's a bottomless well of money and effects to draw from and so then they throw in everything and the kitchen sink, and somehow it loses something in that translation. Well, yeah, yeah they, you know, when, they don't have to say no to anything. Exactly. And by by not having limitations put on them, you know, something's – I mean, you know, well, yeah. also another good example is Jaws. You know, you look at the original Jaws. I think that movie would be forgotten today if Spielberg if had – If the shark had worked. Yeah, if, yeah, exactly. If 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 the Spielberg that made that movie was today's Spielberg, with you know 
uh, you know, limit, you know, limitless yeah. technology and a bottomless wallet. That movie would be, it would be, you know, it would be uh, Lost World you know, or something that had come I'm, out, made a minor splash, and then you know, ten years later, people don't remember it ever existed. You know, I'm gonna make it rather last- than a timeless classic because he had to, because like you say, the shark didn't work, so he had to play up. That much more he had to the, edit it differently and, and yeah, completely yeah. work up the suspense more, and he had to make exactly. it all. He had to, people had to use their it's imagination. It's much more, more. character driven. Yeah, yeah. It's more character driven. You know, the score drives so much more of that movie. Yep. Stuff like that. You know, I mean that that's the same type of thing with you know with the original Star Wars and and movies like that is. You know, when when suddenly well, I'm going to make a nostril dumbass type prediction right now, <laughs> and that is that in the future, as we move into an economy where there's less money to throw around, you get it's going to be sort of hip, I think, for these Spielberg Spielberg level directors to like go back to their roots, which is total bullshit because oh, yeah. a lot of them started out big time anyway. But a lot to go to like doing like. You know, a three million dollar budgeted movie with, where they'll probably get good actors to do it, but they'll just you know forego their big money and do it for union wages or something, and that you're gonna see like this whole like hip thing of doing movies like in you know doing indie you know fame industry traditionally industry people doing indie style productions because mm-hmm. a <laughs> They'll cost less money, and that'll make them more likely to get shown if they cost less money and can make thus generate more profit. And B, it'll, it'll, it'll I think it'll just be the hip thing to do. I think that you know, the, there's going to be a, star, a a beginning. People are going to really start to go to the smaller budgeted and the the minor players now for their entertainment for to get their entertainment bang for their buck. So you're going to see a lot more people listening to podcasts in their car on the way to work than maybe serious radio, which they have to subscribe to. You know what I'm saying? Right. And uh, and a lot more people watching YouTube and the other sites that they can, or you know, surf the channel where they can go and watch their TV instead of getting cable. And uh, yeah, it's going to be very interesting. But I think uh, I think it's about time to take a. Yeah, I was just going to say, we're going a little long for this segment. So, yeah, let's take a break, and we'll come back with uh, a quick book review and then Marvel Comics Star Wars 13 through 15. Yep. Meanwhile, take a trip under the sea. Sorry, I was eating a Twinkie. Hi, friends. It's me, Orca Stay Free. And this is the Orca Book Club. Welcome to the Orca Book Club. Today's selection is the audiobook edition of Star Wars The Cestus Deception by Stephen Barnes. This is the abridged edition read by Jonathan Davis. This book takes place during the Clone Wars between Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones and Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith. 
The very basic premise of this book is that Obi-Wan Kenobi and Kit Fisto are dispatched to a remote rim world to negotiate a cessation of manufacturing of a new form of battle droid dubbed a Jedi Killer. Kenobi and Fisto split up upon reaching the planet and launch a two-pronged strategy, one of diplomacy and one of recruiting factions opposed to the planetary government, respectively. I enjoyed this book. It was a refreshing change of pace from the other prequel trilogy timeline-based books that I've read up to this point. Most notably, Anakin Skywalker is not in it. He makes a brief cameo, a very brief cameo, in the very beginning of uh, to explain his absence from the main story, and then that's all that we see of him. I like that. It's nice to see Obi-Wan get a solo story of, of sorts for a change, and uh, it was cool to get a bit more of Kit Fisto. I always thought he was an interesting character and someone I'd like to learn more about, and we get some of that in this book. Not a whole lot, but you know, a little bit more insight into the character. What I really liked most about the book, however, was the character of a clone trooper we come to know as Nate. During the course of the story, Fisto and his squad of clones meet up with a contact on the planet, a woman who we find out knew and was once romantically involved with Jango Fett. She takes a particular interest in Nate, and he, being a clone of Jango after all, is especially fascinated by her. We get a lot of insight into the clone mind, their training, conditioning, and general overall outlook on life as essentially weapons rather than people. And it's some very interesting reading. We also learn that their outward respect and admiration for the Jedi is tempered by a secret resentment that it was the Jedi that killed their template and quote-unquote hero, Jango Fett. On the negative side, however, is that same old monster that seems to rear its ugly head Star Wars book after Star Wars book. It gets really slow and talky. This book is very good, and it's quite entertaining, but it also suffers from the same old boring, in-depth study of interplanetary government politics and... Oh, oh I'm sorry. Um, what was I say? Oh... I really wish they'd keep the plots in these stories to the animated series or Clone Wars Adventures comic book style, you know, where there's Planet X, something's going on, we gotta go blow some shit up. You know, there, that's your story, go. Not not all this political intrigue, who's pulling the strings, history of the planet, workings of the inner government bullshit, I really don't care about any of that. I like Star Wars because I like to see shit blow up. It just drags down the pace of, of the stories when they do this sort of thing, all this political intrigue, and Star Wars should never drag down. That aside, I give a thumbs up to The Cestus Deception. It was one of the better Star Wars reads so far. Check it out. More next time. This has been The Orca Book Club.
All right. We are back, and we are getting into Marvel Comics Star Wars issues 13 through 15. And we'll get right into this with a review of number 13. Starts off with a very cool cover by none other than John Byrne and Terry Austin, who uh, I think this is prior to their uh, work on X-Men, but of course that that would be their their big claim to fame in in just a short time after this was uh, when they would work together on uh, Uncanny X-Men with uh, Chris Claremont. Anyway, they provide the cover on this one, which is a really cool cover of uh, Chewbacca looking very uh, very Sasquatch-esque, and he's swatting Luke aside with one arm, and he's got 3PO by the neck with the other arm, and uh, 3PO saying, Master Luke, this time we don't dare let the Wookiee win. But it's a really cool cover. I really like this cover. Yeah, it's a great one. And we get into the inside story titled Day of the Dragon Lords, which is such a weird title for a Star Wars, you know, story. But uh, Especially since fr- the cover says the, the name of the story is Deadly Reunion. Oh, it does too, yeah. <laughs> when we get into this one, it's uh, written and edited by Archie Goodwin. The artists are, again, uh, Carmine Infantino and Terry Austin. And we uh, pick up pretty much where we left Luke at the end of the last issue. He's been taken captive by the governor, who is uh, basically the leader of this group of people who live on a giant houseboat, water world type community. Um, they're on this unnamed planet, this unnamed water planet in the Drexel system. Luke's been captured, and right off the bat, he realizes he's not in a very good position because basically the governor is telling him that the only reason he's keeping him alive and the droids in one piece is because he thinks that they might be of, or Luke's trying to convince him that they might be of use uh, as repair droids and and basically keeping uh, the governor's little fleet of skimmer ships in operating condition and, and... the governor's basically telling him, well, you know, prove your worth and we'll, we'll see, basically. Um, so the droids do some quick repair work on a skimmer, and then Luke is uh, going to take it out to basically prove to the governor that, you know, he's as good as his word and that, that the droids can, uh, can affect these repairs. And he's sent out to destroy this, like, floating raft thing. And while he's flying there he doesn't notice that someone comes sneaking out of the hold behind him and starts to choke him to death. And this guy is the current master machine smith, and he's jealous. He's, he's worried about his position, basically. And he's choking Luke, and Luke's flailing about, and Luke happens to kick the braking mechanism, which makes the skimmer screech to a halt, and Luke's kind of prepared for this, so he, nothing happens to him, but the other guy goes flying. He flies right out of the ship. Luke gets the uh, the skimmer back under control, but the stresses tear the canopy off and everything. He finishes his little mission. He's, he breaks up the uh, the floating log thing with the lasers and flies back to the, uh, the ship that they all live on. And the... Uh, Governor tells him that he basically uh, has a position now as the new master machine smith. 
the droids are given a quick uh, lubricant bath using like the local like fish oil of the planet or whatever. And 3PO makes notice of these little lizard creatures that seem to be all over the place. And uh, the governor says, you know, that that they basically live there and, you know, they're harmless. They're nothing to worry about. Um, so he and Luke are talking and they wander out onto the main deck. And Luke happens to notice that there's this body hanging. Uh, someone's been hung from this high yard arm in the, in the city ship. And he realizes that it was the master machine smith, the guy that attacked him. And it really makes him realize that this governor guy is a complete scumbag. The governor did this basically as an object lesson to the other people, you know, to, to you know, reiterate that, you know, he's the ruler and they've got to obey his rules and do as he says. And then he relates the story to Luke about basically how their society came to be, how they came to be on this planet. Originally, his father had been the leader of these people, and they were basically a bunch of uh, space wreckers, is what he calls them. They had the technology to uh, make any ships that strayed into their system go kind of nuts and crash into this asteroid field that was in their system. And when they did, when the ships were, were wrecked, they would go and just loot the ships and uh, and salvage whatever they could. Well, this drew the attention of the uh, Jedis of the Old Republic who came and basically busted up their operation and drove them away. And they were driven to this water world in the Drexel system where they are now. And then, you know, the governor relates the story of how they, you know, they set up their society and how they came to, to be in the state they are now. And that they broke into factions and some of the factions, you know, when they rebelled against the leadership, were driven off and basically left to die. But they didn't die. They survived and they became the enemies, the dragon lords, who we saw some of at the end of the last issue. You know, these were the guys that were riding on the giant dragon lizard things. And uh, basically the governor's people have a war going with uh, these dragon people. And uh, while they're talking about all this, uh, one of the governor's people comes to him and tells him, you know, they're, they're getting a, an alert that there's a giant ship headed into their system. So the governor orders the space wrecker equipment turned on and he wants that ship. Well, the ship, of course, is the ship, the uh, captured Star Destroyer that Crimson Jack, the space pirate, uses and he has come to this system because he has uh, Han Solo, Chewbacca, and Princess Leia on his ship. And Han and uh, the princess have basically tricked Jack into believing that this world is where the rebels are. And this is where Han got his rebel treasure that Jack relieved him of a couple issues ago. And Jack's a greedy bastard. He wants more of this treasure. So that's what he's doing in this planet. Han's kind of sweating bullets at this point because... You know, up till this point, he's bluffed Jack into to coming to this planet, but now they're there, and the the jig is up. Basically, he's he doesn't know what else to say, so he's under uh, you know he's at gunpoint, not knowing where to go with his story. Leia's being brought to uh, up to the bridge with Jack and Han and Chewie by Jolly when all of a sudden they're hit by the space record beam or whatever this technology is that the governor's got down on the planet. The gravity and everything goes crazy on the ship for just a moment, and while Jack and his crew are trying to deal with that, 
Han, Chewie, and Leia run off, grab some weapons, and they basically fight their way to the Falcon. Uh, they get in the Falcon and they split. Um, cutting back to the planet, the governor's freaking out because he's telling them, you know, why haven't you brought the ship down yet? And the guys are trying to tell him, well, you know, the ship's way too big for us to really be able to bring it down. All we're doing at this point is just, you know, basically jamming their systems or what, but we don't think we're actually going to be able to bring it down. And at this point, there's an announcement, you know, the, one of the lookouts or whatever in the, in the city ship uh, says that they're being attacked. And there's a great panel showing basically an army of these dragons and the dragon lord people are attacking the world ship. So the governor orders, you know, every seaworthy skimmer you know, to uh, go into service and battle these uh, these dragon lords. And so now the big battle is on, and Luke's in control of one of the skimmers. He goes out, and while he's out there, you know, trying to, to prove his worth, here comes the Millennium Falcon, you know, skipping across the water like a, like a flat stone, and it crashes into the water. And as Luke is headed to the Falcon, uh, he sees Han, Leia, and Chewbacca blasted, by another skimmer, so he's really pissed. He he uses his own skimmer and shoots down the skimmer that that shot and looked like it killed uh, Han, Leia, and Chewie. He stops his skimmer. He's looking overboard, you know, trying to find survivors. When all of a sudden Chewbacca comes up, grabs Luke by the throat, and uh, then Luke's skimmer is destroyed because the uh, you know the other skimmer saw that what he you know what he did when he destroyed uh, the skimmer that shot. At the Falcon, so Luke and uh, and uh, Chewie are thrown overboard and knocked unconscious. When Luke comes out of it, uh, they're all in the in the down in like a prison hold. Uh, Luke, the two droids, and Chewie, and Chewie's going nuts. He's tearing the place up. He's throwing a three PO, and uh, then he's coming after Luke. And that's where the episode, or rather, where the issue ends. Where Luke is cornered, and a very pissed-off Chewbacca is about to just yep. wring his neck. <laughs> it's weird. It ends right where the cover is. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, and uh, I love the cover on this. I think I, you know, rather than I think the Chewbacca on this is one of the best Chewbaccas so far. I think I just love John. I like John Byrne's artwork, anyways, especially oh, yeah. when it's with established characters and. You know, he's got. It's just great to see a cover with Chewbacca and C-3PO looking right, <laughs> looking, you know, very, very good depictions of both of them. So I, I love the cover, and I, I, I didn't. If if I sounded like I slighted it, I didn't mean to slight it. It's just I, I still don't think Chewie's quite right, but he's uh-huh. definitely better than he's been up to this point. He just he still looks kind of, kind of Sasquatch like to me. You know, he doesn't quite look like the movie Chewbacca, but he yeah. is much closer than, than he has been so far by just about any other artist in, in any other issue up to now. Well, except for uh, that one that we commented on where, where Tom Palmer had uh, had inked him. I thought that that was, uh, that was a really good Chewbacca. Uh-huh. But yeah, he, he, he does look great on this cover. Yeah, I really I, like that. This has always been one of my favorite... This is just this whole general story arc. I've always liked it because it was just one of the first posts. And this is, I mean, 
the the first the first arc with Han Solo didn't click as much of Star like Star Wars as this one because this has all the characters separate, right. but then it has them come together. It has a very Star Wars feel to it, and even it has a feel for the cinematic Star Wars in it. And like one one scene that um that I really like in this. That reminds me that plays out in a very and is very scripted very well is uh, when three PO and R two are taking their their fish oil bath, you know. Yes. Obvious reference, to, and you see the little you know you see the little dragon like sipping at the oil, and you know the captain the captain sort of kicks it away and is like ah, these little things, and and you know it, it jumps into the water, and you see like. An old lady and her daughter are, are like playing with one, and um, you know, or is it? Is it? It's not really in this episode, but it's, you know, it's just a nice little uh, foreshadowing. Right. Of, of yeah, I know where you're come. going, but yeah, that's that's another. Yeah, that's that's a little bit later where we get more of the story with the little yeah, dragon. Yeah, but lizard. you got you got a little foreshadowing there, and and. And the scene, like you said, where the with all the dragon lords coming over the distance, that's a beautifully rendered. Mm-hmm. It's very, it's weird. It's uh, it's got those, it's got the like detail. I like a lot of detail, but I also like the big thick inks. You know, the big Will Eisnery looking inks, and this has everything. You know, like you know the the there's no detail. They're just little blobs coming over the horizon. But it's beautiful. It's exactly like it would look, you know. You don't need. It's very simple there. Yet the logs and the ropes are very detailed, you know. And the moss on the ship that just has a very soft mossy look. It's just beautifully, beautifully drawn. Like this whole whole issue. Yeah, the two panels that really stand out to me in this entire issue, right from when I was a kid, are the one you just mentioned where, you know, the the the, the guys, I don't know what you would even call them, they look very much like pirates. But, you know, they're just the they're the city ship dwellers, you know, the, the guy's up on the yard arm and he's yelling, you know, the, the dragons are attacking. That panel is just, you know, creepy beautiful, you know. But that one and the, the other one that always really has stood out to me since I was a kid, and I guess it's just because I maybe I just didn't see a whole lot of, you know, I mean, I was never into, like, horror comics or anything right. like that as a kid. But the panel of uh, Luke and the governor looking up to where the guy has been hung, that one always struck me, you know, right from being a kid of just really creepy, you know, there's the... These giant, I mean, these yard arms on this ship are huge enough that there's actually buildings, buildings on, on them. Yeah, you know? you know, like people are living there, like a whole town out on this yard arm. And then here's, you know, this this guy is hung from one, and then the moon's behind him, so he's like in silhouette, and it's just really creepy, you know, really uh, macabre. Yeah, but it, yeah, I've always well, liked that panel. It looks like it looks like a. a- frame from a horror comic and you know and Luke's Luke's gotta be feeling that he's partially responsible for the death of that guy you know right yeah very much so yeah I I like this I I, I, you know this like you said I think this feels a lot more 
Star Warsy because it has all the characters, but also I, I think it's a I think it's more worthy of the Star Wars uh, name. You know, I mean, I think it does try oh, yeah. to capture more of a of a sci fi feeling. You know, it's not just the you know, it's not just a rehash of an established thing like like the you know, as much as I enjoyed the Han Solo and Chewbacca solo thing in in seven through ten, you know, it pretty much was just uh, you know ripping off like the Magnificent Seven. Whereas this is a whole new and and pretty unique story. You know, it's it's a unique story. It's like a combo of well, the thing about Star Wars is Star Wars isn't you can't really think of it. You shouldn't really think of it as sci-fi. It's got sci-fi elements to it, but it's fantasy. You know, it's action. Right. Yeah. Um, this one's got, you know, seafaring pirate movie aspects to it, along with with dragon, you know, slayer type aspects. With and it's also got a sort of, you know, microcosm of the Imperials and the Rebels with the Governor and the and the Dragon Riders. You know, it's got all these sort of elements all in the Star Wars framework, but it's all a mishmash of different kinds of adventure stories, you know. Whatever kind of adventure story suits their needs. And they tried to, I mean, that's what they tried to do with the first adventure with the Magnificent Seven ripoff, but it was too overtly just one thing, you know. Right. This has, this has a whole the whole mishmash, and when you have that whole mishmash, it comes out as its own sort of flavor, and this definitely has, and it's not. It, it feels star, you know. It's Star Warsy. It's also very comicy, but it's just very well scripted. The way the story, you know, the guy being hung is the preface is what introduces this guy to tell his life story, and it just underlines the fact of what a mercenary bastard, you know, kill, you know, will do anything to make money and to maintain power. And, uh, you know, his his life story is prefaced by, you know, somebody being hung for just the purpose of intimidation. So it's pretty, pretty, pretty well written. And the, and the way it flows is, is great. And, um, you know, it's basically, you know, Luke and Luke is manipulating one set of bat, greedy bad guys and... Han and Leia are manipulating another set of greedy bad guys into bringing them all together, <laughs> you know, to, right. into saving each other. They basically come together to save each other. They're coming to save Luke, and and they need to be saved from Crimson Jack, and everybody just sort of shows up to, you know, and as a unit, now they can all save each other's asses. And they've <laughs> manipulated all the forces of evil into into getting them where they needed to be. Where they needed to be and where the bad guys don't need to be. And now we get to see the whole... Now that they're together, we see... We can see the full Star Wars dynamic begin to play out. <laughs> Alright, you gonna do uh, number 14? Sure will. I love the uh, the cover to this one, although... Well, 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 we'll get to it in a minute, but yeah, I have some issues with it, too. Oh, really? <laughs> What drives me crazy is, all right, for one thing, Han and Chewie need to switch weapons. You know, right. Chewie's got the tiny <laughs> blaster. Han's got the great big gun. Switch weapons already. But then um, 
I don't know if it's just the inking or some kind of shading effect or what, but Chewie looks really, really looks like he's got a beer gut. I mean, does he not? Oh, for sure. I mean, to me, it, it, with the rounded inks, you know, like the ink lines right there, it does. It looks like yeah, he's and got it's a kinda, and like it's like kind a of a belly. bald spot too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But no, I, I do. I like that. But uh, I don't know if it's this issue or later on, but Leia's kind of doing it a little bit on this cover. Carmine Infantino makes people hold their weapons sometimes in the most bizarre positions. I mean, just like unnatural positions. It was in I, – I think I, I think it may have been in the last issue and I forgot to comment on it. But there was a shot with – uh, Han and Leia where they're fighting yeah I think it was when they were fighting their way to the Falcon and uh, and they were holding their guns in just the most uncomfortable unnatural, unnatural position yeah, yeah I, mean, it, I mean your wrist would have to be broken in order to hold the weapons the way that they were holding them in this in this one this one panel I meant to point it out and I missed it but yeah, I just I've noticed that, but that's that's definitely an infantinoism. That was just something that he he commonly did was he as as masterful yeah. an artist as he is. Sometimes he just made people move or, or position them in really strange and unnatural ways. You know, that is true. And and the mouths. That's always my yeah. dead giveaway for Carmine Infantino. Anyway, Carmen, he's the art. He and Terry Austin are the artists in this one. Denise Wool, letter, Janice Cohen, colorist, Archie Goodwin once again is a writer editor, and Jim Shooter's consulting editor. This one's the Sound of Armageddon, which isn't there a Star Trek called The Taste of Armageddon? So now we've got the taste and the sound of Armageddon. I know. We, we now what does Armageddon smell like? So this one, you know. As we start out this issue, it's just at the at the last one. Chewie's attacking Luke, and he's sort of in a blind rage. So he doesn't really, probably doesn't even know it's Luke. Is the way it's played off is so he's just he's just pissed. <laughs> so he's attacking whoever's whoever's the closest to him in his Wookiee like rage. And uh, meanwhile, you know the the. The governor's forces are fighting the dragon lords, and the and uh, the next page is a great double page spread of of the battle. And as as he's watching, you know, um, his his crew's starting to uh, you know tell him, "Look, we got these guys attacking, and we're trying to pull down a freaking star destroyer. You know, we're really taxing our reserves. We're not going to make it very long if we continue." This course, and he basically, you know, in the in the manner of all these sort of tin pot dictators, tells the guy to, you know, shut up and just keep doing what I tell you to do. And meanwhile, Crimson Jack is, you know, is pissed. Solo's gotten away. Now they're getting pulled down to the planet. You know, and now he wants his uh, his revenge on uh, Han Solo. And Jolly's starting to, you know, realize that she got suckered by Princess Leia into thinking evil thoughts about Han Solo and that distracted her from her pirate duties. Meanwhile, Han, who's been in the last issue, was knocked out when, when his ship was shot, finds, finds himself waking up with a respirator on on the back of a of a dragon and, and getting pulled into 
so you know what what you would assume would be the uh dragon lord headquarters or he's get you know he's going away with the dragon lord and uh princess leia is still aboard the the falcon is getting towed towards the governor's ship so basically in in a very star wars fashion everybody's sort of together but they're they're still apart so the government governor's going to check out what's going on meanwhile chewie's still fighting luke and in his blind rage Luke uses the old trick of getting 3PO to kneel down behind Chewbacca and trip him. And then R2 sprays him with um, fire extinguisher fluid, which I guess cuts off Chewie's oxygen enough to knock him out. And so um, the governor pulls out a... Wah, wah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, governor pulls out, out Luke and... Uh, you know, says, hey, look, we got the Falcon. Luke's pissed, you know, you blew my friends out of the water, and the governors were like, look, we got some of them here. We got their car. Meanwhile, we get, this is a, um, we see one of the little dragons, one of the little lizards get kicked off the, the ship by the governor, just as a sort of aside, the way that Jabba would flick one of those little hoppy creatures off of his podium or whatever, and, uh, it swims down, and we find out that it's really just a little one of the big dragons. And it sort of hooks onto a dragon, and that takes us into the underground cave fortress of uh, the dragon people who who have Han Solo. And, and, you know, Han's starting to take a liking to him already because, of course, they're the, the sort of re- rebellious um, aspect and uh so they 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 they're bonding and they tell the story of how you know they basically were the scientists and they were separated from the governor's father's people and learned to use the power of sound to control these dragons which are actually intelligent creatures and uh so intelligent in fact that they can use them as spies to go you know aboard the governor's ship and find out what the governor wants to do so these harmless little creatures that are all over the ship are actually like little little bugs basically and uh have been underneath the governor's nose the whole time without him knowing it back at the ship you know meanwhile han solo's heading back to to they have to turn out the uh this giant tractor beam or jammer or whatever it is. they call it a jammer whatever it is that brings down the ships, the the impulse, the waves it generates, drive the dragons nuts and eventually kills them. It's, it, it, it hurts them, it screws up their navigational system or whatever. Either way, it's really, really bad for them. So Han Solo's going to try to shut that down. So once that's shut down, you know, the, the dragons can also attack better. So he gets back to the ship and... and um, Pardon me. Um, R2 and R2 and 3PO <laughs> trying to boost up the signal, and uh, so he comes. He comes into the Falcon. He's sort of in a purple space age Buck Rogers looking scuba suit, and Luke attacks him, thinking he's a dragon rider. But you know, it's soon established. You know, once Luke's got his gun on him, um, you know that it's it's uh, Han, and Han's of course gonna bring Luke up to date on on what's going on from the Dragon Rider side. Meanwhile, 
um, the governor's bringing Leah over to the Falcon to see what, you know, to, to find out what's, what's going on, what the progress is. She gives him the nice Captain Kirk double-fisted blow to the gut and, and runs off. In the meantime, Chewie starts smashing out of where he's being kept, you know, right next to where, where the governor is. So that's sort of, um, giving the princess a chance to escape. And, uh, of course, Chewie now gets to really start tearing things up because he's surrounded by bad guys, so he just starts tossing them. And uh, meanwhile, Han takes the, the gun away from Luke and, uh, you know, says, look, we got to stop screwing up the, the dragons. And Luke says, okay, well, you know, we've got, the, we've got it all set. We can uh, use the Falcon to, uh, to blast the, the, the jammer. And meanwhile, the the um, governor has got Le- Leia cornered out on like one of the mastheads, you know, one of the mossy mastheads, and uh, you know he's doing the the standard. Oh, I'd say he's probably fifteen feet away from her and trying to shoot her with a blaster and getting close, but not getting him. And Luke does, of course. We've been waiting for it to happen this whole. Um, whole sort of story arc, but Luke does the classic swashbuckler and swings from a rope, kicks the governor off the off the plank and grabs Leia. Um just as uh the Millennium Falcons guns blast away the jammer. And now uh you know, they're they're all now everybody's together. They're all together on the on the ship and uh they're all pretty happy, and Luke's like, hey, you know, we, we got rid of the governor, we blasted his jammer, now everything's going to be, you know, swell, right? Just like old times, right, Han? And Han's just looking out, out to sea with a pensive look on his face because he knows Crimson Jack's up there and probably pissed off and is going to want to kill all of them. <laughs> and uh, that brings us to the end of this sh- issue, and... Uh, says the next issue is showdown and we can probably showdown. guess who it's going to be a showdown between so that's that's number f- issue number 14 and just like the the last one not a lot happens in the issue you know not not a lot, lot of uh story happens but it's just uh it's just well told you know over the course of there's there's yeah. that great splash page. I love the second, you know, right after the opening page. Yeah. Where, where the next page where it's sort of, and then the battle's raging, you know, and you see just the, he's got a really good feel for the roiling, you know, sea with dragons coming out from all angles and butting the skimmers and the big ship in the background you know you can basically just sort of see the outline of the big ship in the background it's great it's a classic sci-fi you know it could almost be if 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 it could almost be like the rough drawing for a really cool painting you know or a painted cover to a novel or something my original first comment was going to be that I, I thought that the art 
suffered and was a little bit inconsistent in this issue. But, you know, the more I look at this, I actually think that the art's very consistent, and I mm-hmm. think it's a problem with the actual printing process. I think somehow the... It's a little dark, yeah. Yeah, in the beginning of it, it's very dark, and then on the fourth page, it almost looks like a page out of an old Charlton comic because the colors are really wonky. It's that... Yeah. You know, you, you know what I'm talking about. How, yeah, how well, Charl- Charlton's were always like sort of like lean towards the orange yellow spectrum yeah, of things. Like yeah, faces. That's what this were, looks like. Crimson Jack, his face is his this weird like sort of like scalded pink. Yeah, he color. looks like his blood pressure's way too high. Yeah, or which something. it is. Yeah. He's pounding his fist into his hand, but I don't think it was purposely done that way. I think it's just yeah, it's it is weird and and. Now, is that a tear in Jolly's eye or on her cheek right there in that one panel? Because or, or, I've always wondered, and I can't really tell. It almost it sure looks, looks like, like she shed a tear. tear. But it's yeah. it's weird. It's almost like a stylized. It, at first, I thought maybe it's like a tattoo, like the prison tattoos that you would get oh, or yeah. something like that. But I don't think it's on her face every time you see her, for sure. I wouldn't no. notice that. But. Yeah, that's really not the thing for her to shed a tear over. <laughs> you know. Now, I really like it, it's it, there's something a little bit off with it. I think the Falcon's actually drawn a little funny cuz I, I think the cockpit's in the wrong place or something, but the bottom of page 6 there's something I've always liked about this right from a kid. I always something I really liked about the idea that the Millennium Falcon could float. I don't know why I thought that was so cool, but I still think that's a neat idea. it just makes it a vessel. <laughs> it's just yeah, a vessel no matter what. Yeah. You I, sort of get the idea that maybe really it could maneuver underwater that. too, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I liked, I think that's cool. Yeah, the the thing with Chewbacca being knocked out by the fire extinguisher foam is definitely the, uh, <laughs> yeah. the, the, you know, the wah, wah, wah well, moment the, of the issue. Because it's just a lame way of taking Chewbacca out, you know? And the Chewie character in this is so, you know, his character is not as developed as it ended up being by Empire and stuff where he was, right. you know, he he was not thought to be as, his character was not thought to be as intelligent as he actually was. He was more thought to be a, a true, you know, rip-you-apart savage, so... You right, know, he would just go into a blind rage and start beating up Luke and three PO. Is just you know, as we know Chewie and later from later movies, we know that like, a if Chewie woke up, he'd probably know the smell of Luke and three PO immediately and be would would be glad to see him. And um, even so, he just doesn't seem to go into blind fury. He he will react violently, but it's in a situation. You know where he's meeting violence, or you know, it's not just an around. You know, Chewie is—they're not always pulling Chewie off somebody. You know, he's not like a loaded gun. You know, he doesn't have a hair trigger. I don't know. I mean, I—I I would argue that I—I I, I don't know. It, it's tough there's to say. There's a lot because... of talk about. There's a lot of talk about in Star Wars about how badass Wookies are, but uh, you know, some of it's some talk that you know is just bullshit talk, maybe by Han Solo right. to screw with them. Oh no, I don't mean that. What I what I mean is is uh you know, up to this point, I mean they they'd only been together for just the brief little adventure through the you know, through the Death Star, you know, traveling to, to Alderaan, 
you know, the whole Death Star thing and all that, and then, you know, they split up. So I don't think at this point Chewbacca feels any special, like, friendship or loyalty to Luke or anything. And I think the fact that he he honestly thinks that Luke shot Han. I mean, he thinks that Luke's skimmer is the skimmer that shot Han and well, and Chewie too, because they were both up on the up on the That's top true. of the Falcon. I, I think that there there it's believable that he would be pissed and that you know Luke wouldn't be able to 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 talk his way out of it or whatever. I just the part of it that just comes off as just really goofy to me is the part where he's taken out with fire extinguisher foam. Yeah. I just think that you know I I think it would have been more. I and could when buy you see it, it he could if, if just wipe that phone he, right away right off of his face with one swipe. Right. Yeah, I I think it would have been more uh I I'd have been more forgiving if maybe, you know, they'd set up the the whole trip trick and he just hit his head, you know, knocked him out, you know, rather than yeah, you know, they trip him down to his knees or whatever and then he gets a face full of foam. And it just seems like such a lame way of taking it. But I don't know, they had to come up with something, but it just seems really lame to me. I uh, but you know, at the same rate, you know, if they'd actually managed to to work something out where, you know, Luke calmed him down, or you know, Chewie was choking Luke to death, and suddenly he came to his senses and realized, oh my goodness, it's Luke. I would have been like, oh come on, because you know, because yeah. we see that later on in Empire. You know, when he's so pissed off at uh, at Lando, I mean, he was going to choke Lando to death if, the life if out you know. Of him. Yeah, you know, if Leia hadn't hadn't you know basically ordered him to stop, I think he would have twisted Lando's head off, you know. So I, I think it's in character. I I just think the way he was taken out was the part that's not really in character. I think that's very very goofy. But um, what else have we got on this one? I I like this though. I like the plot. You know, I like the. Well, this I thought one- the thing with the. Little Lizards was really clever. You that know? was a very nice transition to where, you know, he's talking and he just absentmindedly kicks the lizard off and you follow it down and that's how they that's how they make the transition into you knowing that these li- these little lizards are just the big lizards and it also brings you to where Han Solo is. So it's a total Star Wars transition, you know. I could totally see how it would be done on the screen, you know, with the lizard swimming in. The next thing you know, you're you're down with Han Solo. It's great. Very Does well the elder? I don't see a name for this guy, so I guess they didn't actually give him a name. But the elder dragon lord that uh, tells Han the whole story and basically tells him what the hell's going on. Does this guy not remind you of Slarty Bartfast? Because uh-huh. he sure does me uh-huh. big time. <laughs> Down there making really fjords. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Designing and fjords. And then uh, the the part where uh, where Luke and Han are back together again is just awesome. I've always liked that moment. And it's cool because they aren't – I mean, they aren't back together for four panels and they're already fighting, you know, because yeah. they, they've – don't even have time to really catch up or anything before they realize that they are on completely opposite sides of this war, you know, because Luke's trying to help the governor bring down Jack's ship and Han's trying to stop, you know, the, the sonic jammer thing. So they, they're on completely opposite sides. And uh, Luke, or I mean, uh, Leia punching the governor and then it's big fat. God, I love that. Kirk style too, the double-fisted yeah. 
Wang. <laughs> and then check out Chewbacca's feet on page 27. What What is up with That's like a, I don't know what you Whoa. would even call that. It's like a sea monster foot. Yeah, it's like a lobster like a man foot. Yeah, a lobster foot. It's <laughs> <laughs> wow. just messed up. But uh yeah, my my favorite part of this whole issue though is the uh is the end. You know, yes, it's very cliched. It's very uh pirate movie-esque and all that. But yeah, I love that Luke swinging in and and swooping lay up, you know, off the off the yard arm and he bats the governor. Eventually, yeah, I've always liked that panel too. You know, the, just the look on the governor's face. You know, he's, I guess that would be enough of a fall to kill him. You know, it's yeah. it's quite a ways down. But yeah, he's just got a great look on his face as Luke just kicks him <sighs> in the big fat, knocks him off there. That's that's excellent. I like that. And and that pan, the second panel on page twenty-eight. Now that's one of those unnatural things I was talking about. Look at the way the governor's holding that weapon. That just looks so uncomfortable. And he's like swinging his fist with the other one like, rah, while he's firing. And <laughs> meanwhile, Luke's doing a Spider-Man with his, with his, where his rope just goes up into the sky. Yep. Yeah, I don't know what that's hooked to. <laughs> he used his web spinners, yeah. But with the art, <laughs> with, with the art and everything in this, this, you know, this could be, that could be a panel from a Tarzan Yep. Comic, you know. And there is a, uh, and there's even an ad in here for the Beatles story by yep. George Perez. There's an ad for Devil Dinosaur. God, what a great old, this is just a great old comic. Yeah. And Captain America and Nick Fury battle uh, Caesar, and they defeat Eat him with Hostess Twinkies. You know, you, you can't beat that. <laughs> it's better than battling a seizure. <laughs> it's a nice... Uh, what I love is there's this X-Men, full-page X-Men ad, right? You know, our on sale now monthly, you know, by Chris Claremont, John Byrne, and Terry Austin, but the uh, the art that they use for this is Dave Cockrum. It's not the John Byrne. I'm just like, what the hell? Don't even use the art for the guy that you're promoting. It's I weird. don't know if they knew it was a. I don't know if it was a big deal, but at that time, at that point, you know, I don't know. Or if they knew it that's, was going to be a big deal. Yeah, that's true. But yeah, awesome issue wraps up the whole water world story, and I, I really like that. the uh, The next issue is almost uh, almost like an epilogue, really, is mm-hmm. kind of how it feels. To uh, yep, it, well, it ties up the loose ends. You want me to go into that one now? Yeah, we might as well hit it. Okay, hit it, baby. Now, I love the cover for this one. This is uh, again, it's Infantino and uh, and Austin on the inks. It's yeah. just a great cover. It's the tilted, you know, it's this giant star destroyer, but it's it's tilted on its side, you know, at least to our perspective. And uh, Han and and Crimson Jack, and then some of the other space pirates, you know, they're all floating out there in space. And you can look at this cover and go, no, wait a minute. All they've got on is breath mass. You know, how are they surviving out there in space? And that was one of the things I remember looking at this and going, oh, i got to read this again because how in the hell did, were they surviving yeah. out there in space with no spacesuits? But they actually do cover that in the issue. So anyway, that, this is number – what's a, that? Just, just a quick mention. It has that classic Marvel Comics space 
that's multicolored. Oh, yeah. Yep. <laughs> All the stars are multicolored and clump, clumped in little Kirby-like lumps. Mm-hmm. I love yeah, it. Very, I love how it looks. Very Kirby-like space. Yeah, absolutely. But I really like that Star Destroyer, you know, because the Star Destroyer is one of those things that Infantino's a little wonky, you know, because right on the first page. Now, that's a wonky-looking Star Destroyer on the first page. I just don't really care for the way that looks. But, you know, the one on the cover's awesome, but then you come inside and it's it's just bizarre-looking. But, uh, yeah, this is issue 15. You know, same guys, Archie Goodwin, writer-editor, uh, Infantino, and Austin on the art chores. And we pick up with... Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, with Crimson Jack's Star Destroyer in orbit around uh, the the water world and the Drexel system. They never do give a name to this planet, to my knowledge. Um, the uh, the Sonic Jammer has been knocked out, so now uh, Crimson Jack's free, and his people uh, are telling him, you know, they're free to go or whatever, but he's telling him, you know, well, I'm not going anywhere. I want Han Solo. He's pissed at Han. You know, Han let him here. Han deceived him. Han almost caused his ship to be pulled down to this planet, and uh, and Jack wants his revenge. So we cut down to the uh, to the planet itself. You know, the the some of the fires are still smoldering or what, but basically the battle with the dragon lords is all over, and Luke and Han and those guys help them to uh, to win the battle. And now it is time for uh, for them to go. So they're they're about to leave. And suddenly the Millennium Falcon is getting attacked by what looks like a Y-Wing fighter. So Han pulls this spectacular dive and, and dives over the side of the of the city ship um, to swim back out to the Falcon so they can go. Um, Leia and Luke get up over the railing and they're about to, to dive off. And this became quite the mini-controversy for a long time, this scene where... Um, Luke admits to Leia that he can't swim. Now, I always thought that this was the logical approach to take to Luke. I mean, he grew up on you know the the desert planet of Tatooine. Yeah. It doesn't seem like he should know how to swim, but it caused something of a stir because in the book um, Splinter of the Mind's Eye that came out right around this same time, Luke could swim and Leia couldn't. So they actually had it reversed in that novel, and for some reason people really embraced that novel you know that aspect of that novel and it bugged them that it was contradicted in this where i i think this is more really the logical approach that luke is the one that should not be able to swim i would think um so anyway everybody swims back to the ship um just as the y wings circling back around going to make another uh pass at, at shooting at the falcon and the falcon takes off out of the water flies into space and uh I'll comment uh, when we do when we talk more about the issue and some of the the ships that we see here. Uh, but uh, Jolly is uh, leading her people, attacking the Falcon, trying to keep it from getting away, trying to basically drive it towards Crimson Jack's uh, star destroyer and drive it into the tractor beam so they can pull it aboard. And Jolly has a little flashback moment to basically kind of explain her character a little bit. She flashes back to when uh, her dad, who was some sort of outlaw, um, was cornered in an imperial attack, and he basically cuts and runs on Jolly and her mother and leaves them behind because he tells them that they're not good enough. 
And this has stuck with Jolly since she was a kid, this, this idea that, you know, she wasn't good enough for a man or she wasn't as good as a man or something. So she always feels like she has something to prove. Like she, she just has to go that extra mile to prove that she's as good as or, or, or better than any man. And, uh, I like that. It, it just, it's a little bit of insight into her character and explains why she's so driven and why she was something of a man hater up to this point where suddenly she's kind of, uh, almost infatuated with, with Han Solo for some reason. So uh, they're about to get sucked into the tractor beam, but now they've got, you know, it's not just Han and Chewie anymore. Now they've also got, you know, Leia and Luke and everybody's aboard. So Luke mans one of the cannons and he's shooting the enemy ships like crazy. But they get slammed by the ship that Jolly is uh, is piloting it scrapes up against the Falcon in such a way that it damages the ship and they can't get away anymore. So, uh, Han proposes a swap with, uh, with Jack. He, he radios Jack and they, they talk to each other and he tells Jack that while he was aboard the ship and while he was allowed access to, uh, Jack's computer systems that he basically deleted all of their hyper jump, uh, information off of the computer so they're screwed they can't leave they're stuck in orbit around this uh this water world unless they want to make blind jumps which you know it's potentially fatal so he proposes a swap that why don't they go outside meet each other halfway and he'll give them the information they need to get underway and then they can give him the parts that he needs to fix the falcon so that they can get underway and so basically what happens is uh Jack's cruiser sets up a protective magnetic field to where they need to be able to breathe. So they need these like almost like scuba gear looking masks and rebreather things, but they don't have to wear spacesuits. So they're out there and uh, no sooner do they make the exchange than, than Han jets off realizing that, you know, Jack's a you know, basically just a dirty pirate bastard and is going to try to kill him anyway. And they get into a big laser fight. And uh, Jolly, when she slammed into the Falcon earlier with her ship, her ship was, was badly damaged and she called for help and overheard Jack basically say, well, you know, she's going to have to help herself and, uh, you know, she'll survive if she's good enough which pisses her off. She manages to make it back into the field of battle where, where Han and Jack are having this little laser fight with each other. She shoots a bunch of the pirate guys, and eventually her ship slams into the control tower of uh, Jack's cruiser. And uh, Jack, you know, he's, he's you know really pissed. You know, he feels that she betrayed him and all this and uh, momentarily forgets about Han Solo turns back to Han and Han blasts him and kills him. And then in the last scene, uh, you know, Jack's been killed and the pirates are now under control and everything. Han and Leia board the ship and they find Jolly's body in the wreckage of, you know, where her ship slammed into the control tower. And uh, Han gives her a kiss and basically, you know, Han and Leia feel sorry for her, you know, that, that, you know, she wound up the way that she did. And, uh, and then there's just a shot of the Falcon flying away saying, you know, let's get going, people. It's a long trip home. And that's pretty much this issue. 
So what'd you think of this one? It was good. Like you said, it was kind of an afterthought. It was just kind of tying up loose ends. Mm-hmm. Um, had some interesting things, like you said you were going to mention, some interesting spaceships in this one. Yes, yes. Now, I don't know if it was intentional. I wonder how much they knew about things that were coming along. I know in the, I've been reading the letter pages, and I meant to mention some of the more interesting things uh, in the letter, letters pages when I got to them. But uh, I know that it, it had been announced by the time this issue came along that there was another movie in the works, but at this point it was still just called Star Wars 2. They didn't even have a name. So anyway, the ship I was going to point out was on the the last panel on page 11. Mm-hmm. This ship looks for all the world like a TIE bomber. I mean, everything. It, it's, I mean, it, it, it's got all the detail. It looks like one. It's, and, yeah. And, you know, and, and I thought about this and, you know, thought, well, maybe they just thought, well, a TIE fighter, you know, one TIE fighter is one thing, but two TIE fighters, you know, we'll just cram two TIE fighters in as a sort of double thing, you know. But the thing about this is the double projections are kind of cylindrical, on the, mm-hmm. just like the TIE bomber, and they they have that right. beam across the top. To makes me think that maybe Lucas was like, here, here's some pre-production art. This is stuff that's just going to pop right. up. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But here's some – we've been drawing other ships. You know, Here's some pre-production art if you want to throw these in here and there. You know, So I think that I'm thinking either that – I think that's a pretty solid theory right there. I think it's either that or maybe this ship was seen in some of the older uh, – like uh, like maybe one of the blueprint things or uh, you know you know how they go through so many sketches yeah, and they didn't and, use, and they didn't and use it in Star Wars but it got right. brought out for for Empire or something that's right. a possibility too because we'll see uh, we'll see more of this sort of thing creep up in in later issues I, I don't want to spoil ahead you know much like in our in our Walking Dead uh, reviews that we're doing. You know, I don't really want to spoil things ahead, but I, I will just say that we'll, we'll see more of this sort of thing in some upcoming issues where there's more, uh, you know, some ships that we'll see later. Um, I know that uh, for a brief time, the prototype uh, star uh, TIE fighter, you know, the same kind that Darth Vader used, became the standard TIE fighter for at least a couple issues. Uh, of Star Wars, and that's coming up, you know, within the next uh, show or two, you know, as we get to later uh-huh. issues. I, I've read ahead just a little bit on this, just uh, just because I really got into the story. Like reading it, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it brings back so many memories, and it's been such a while. You know, I, I thought I, I remembered these better than I did. So it, you know, getting back into them and rereading them, it was like, oh yeah, I forgot about such and such. You know, like like the thing with Jolly. You know, I forgot as I was reading. Uh, like the beginning of this story, you know, when uh, I think it was issue eleven, uh-huh. ten or eleven, when when Crimson Jack first ambushed, um, I know it had to be further back. Anyway, whatever issue it was, where Jack ambushed Han and Chewie for the first time, and we were introduced to Jolly. I remembered the character, but I couldn't remember whatever happened to her. I I actually remembered what happened to Jack. I remembered the space duel and all that, but I couldn't remember what happened to Jolly. So I started reading ahead, and that's when I got to, you know, 
that that was to me that was the the moment that really makes this issue is I, I'm sad that she died. I, I actually came to to like the character, and I, I think it would have been interesting if they hadn't killed her off. To, to I think she could have made well, yeah, she a, was a um, man hater is is sort of a is sort of a uh, code word for lesbian too. And she is, you know, you know that that was sort of like the like a, fr- a phrase used to, you know, is a sort of like maybe the maybe like to use on TV or something. They would use the word man hater, you know. I thought she hated men, you know, and that's sort right. of and there's sort of a basic like sort of pop psychology involved in here, and, and the way she, and like her her manner and her tomboyishness. She's sort of a stereotypical lesbian sort of character. Which nah. isn't well. Nah. It's not going to pop up in a Star Wars comic, but she's way too hot to be a lesbian, and uh, we're going to get letters. <laughs> <laughs> they don't write letters; they just I'm come to. I'm kidding. Our... I'm just. But kidding. I'm saying, I think that's sort of. I think that's sort of like. I don't know. I think that's sort of the 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 subtext of it. And then Han Solo's no. Han Solo. And then why has, was it? Why wasn't she? Is so Han Solo is such a super. It's sort of like a. It's sort of like a. That's why I, I think maybe um, Kevin Smith stole this subplot for chasing Amy, and then oh, Han, Solo, Han Solo stirred her. That's why she was so screwed okay, up. And, I got you. And, I got you. So she was man hating lesbian, but until then she, she met Han Solo, Solo and, and that stirred the feelings in her, and and Weird. made her made her irrational and led to her downfall. <laughs> and and so who and and who could help but fo- and look at Han Solo on the page opposite of the Thai bomber on page eleven or well it's not opposite but the page before it uh, page eleven. Check out that Han Solo doing a jaunty jig. It's like he's dancing a little Irish jig, and it Where actually is it page eleven. Page eleven, where Chewie says "Gorok, Gorok, G O R W K," and Han's like "Doopy doopy doo." He's got his arms swung out. He's dancing like the river dance. Yeah, that also gives you a sort of idea of what Han Solo would look like if Kurt Russell played him. I think. <laughs> So that, and, yeah, and look at Luke. Luke's like loving it. He's loving watching him do it. Look at him dance. <laughs> <laughs> and and another thing in this issue is is Princess Leia's buns have never been so like squared off. Her hair is just like pieces of wood. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't find her near as hot in in some of these issues as I did like when she first popped up. In uh, what was that, eleven or twelve? The first, you know, the the her first appearance as drawn by um, Infantino in whatever issue that was. I can remember commenting on just how hot I thought she looked, but somehow she she lost some of that in 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 yeah. the last couple issues. I thought. Page well, plus 20. I I get tired. I was so glad just prior to Empire coming out. Like like in the last six seven issues, right before the Empire adaption, where they finally let them get out of these uniforms, because I got really tired of seeing, you know, Luke in his tattooing outfit and Leia in her damn gown and and yep. the tight ones. Because it's like it's, they've been you know, wearing their lucky outfits ever since Star Wars. Yeah, well, I'm I mean, not it, it's my lucky outfit. 
it's superhero syndrome, you know. Yeah. I mean, except for like Iron Man, you know, superheroes never change their clothes. So these guys became, you know, because it was a comic book and because it was put out by Marvel and everything, they kind of fell into superhero mode where they wore the right. same uniform. You know, it became like a uniform, and so there was no internal logic of going. Now wait a minute, you know, this is a this is a desert outfit. We're on a <laughs> right. water planet now. We should be wearing like a like a skimmer suit or something. No, you know, I mean, no matter where they went, no matter what they did, he's still stuck in this stupid tattooing outfit, and she was stuck in this gown. And, I mean, it really – there's an issue coming up where it really stood out how ridiculous it was because there's a panel where she's running with, like, high heels and, like, this big flowing yeah. gown, and, and you're just looking at it going – she would trip and kill herself. Well, you know, there's no way. And she's sort of a liberated tomboy character, you know. You'd think she would be wearing, like, more practical outfits most of the time. I mean, right. when they got her in Star Wars, she was on a diplomatic mission, so she might have been dressed up a little bit, you know. And then you're, you're sort of – once they throw you in jail, you're sort of stuck with what you got, you know. But Now, I and, can't remember if pre-Empire, if Leia's outfit changed – pre-Empire, but I know that Luke definitely does because he went to that cool styling jacket that I always like so much from the end of the first movie. I'll have to try to make note of what Leia goes to because I know that later, especially after Return of the Jedi, I mean, every issue she was wearing something different, and I really like that. You know, Sometimes she was wearing kind of like a combat fatigue kind of thing. Sometimes it was like a jumpsuit. You know, sometimes it was a gown or whatever, just depending on what – it became logical because it depended on what was going on. It depended on what the mission was or whatever the action was that was going on around her. But in these early ones, it just – it wore on me really fast that they never, ever changed their outfits, you know? Yeah. And she was the one that really, I think, bugged me the most because it was like, okay, would you really wear a gown everywhere? Yeah. You know, on every single kind of mission that you go on, but but yeah, I, I really, uh, I really, I liked this story, and uh, you know, next time we'll, we've got a couple solo stories, but the next one after that is another arc. Um, I think it's a six issue arc um, again by uh, Inventino, and uh, I don't like it quite as much. So th- this one really holds a, holds a special place. Also, this is uh, worth noting that issue 15 is the last um, we'll see of, uh, of Terry Austin um, as the inker. He, uh, he left after this issue, and I'm not sure exactly what next project he went to after this. It may have been X-Men, but I, I don't think so quite yet. But, uh, right. yeah, it changes up after next issue, and I believe it's Bob... Uh, I'm not exactly sure how you pronounce his name. I think it's Wycheck or Wycheck, something like that. It's W-I-A-C-E-K. As a kid, I always said it was Wycheck, but that's actually not right. It's something like Wycheck or something. Yeah. Something strange like that. But yeah, I'm pretty sure he became the regular uh, inker, at least for a a time anyway. Um, But uh, yeah, next time we'll do uh, issues uh, 16 and 17 and 16... It is uh, one of my favorite issues. It's uh, it's a one shot, um, and uh, um, Walt Simonson is the artist on that. And Yay. then seventh, yeah, great, great Simonson stuff. 
And 17 is a flashback tale of Luke pre A New Hope. So that will be next time for our uh, Monthly Mondays. Awesome. Looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. Big time. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.libsyn.com where you can download all of our episodes and find our forum to openly and freely discuss topics from this and all other episodes with us and your fellow listeners. twotruefreaks.libsyn.com is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S dot Libsyn, which is L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. You can email us directly at two true freaks at gmail.com. And thanks for listening to the Two True Freaks podcast. Two True Freaks has been brought to you today by Damanzo Cor of Milan, Italy, and by the letters F and U. <laughs>